Good evening, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another CHP episode. That 10-part Warlord series is now behind us. Uh, believe it or not, our story today overlaps a good part of the Warlord era, so we're still in the first half of the 20th century. One last topic from these modern times, and then we'll go leap back into something a little more BCE-ish. I, of course, have always known about today's topic, but I never wrote her down until recently when someone among my Patreon supporters suggested it. Today's topic, Kawashima Yoshiko and the bigger picture of the dramatic story of the whole deposed Qing royal family isn't anything that tilted the balance of history. This rump royal court represented the residual detritus of the once great Qing dynasty. And like a lot of royals who found themselves in similar circumstances, all they could do was hold on tight and try to survive the impact. Most all of them blended into obscurity, and we hardly remember their names. If not for Bernardo Bertolucci and his 1987 film that won the Best Picture Oscar in 88, we might not even remember the last emperor, Puyi. These Manchu Qing royals who had to leave the safety and comfort of the Forbidden City, and go out into the world to fend for themselves, well, they left behind quite a few stories. Bertolucci, in his film, told the Hollywood version of Puyi. Kawashima Yoshiko, this is another one of those stories from that era in China when the dynasty fell, and the Japanese very quietly started sizing up parts of China. When warlords were controlling everything, and the nationalist government was fighting back. The communists were just getting started. A lot was happening. If you remember from The Last Emperor, there was a character named Eastern Jewel, who was played so unforgettably by Maggie Han. I can never forget that scene in Tianjin when Puyi was living in exile, and Maggie Han, as Eastern Jewel, burst into the rooms occupied by Empress Wan Rong, played by Joan Chen, and John Lone as Puyi, and she was dressed in a whole fighter pilot get up and her famous line, I'm a Japanese spy and I don't care who knows about it. Well, she's our topic for today. Eastern Jewel, Dong Jun, is just her courtesy name. A courtesy names, or zi. It was a common tradition. It was a new name you picked up when you were older and it sort of gave off a whiff of who you were or wanted to be known as. In history, however, she's best known as Kawashima Yoshiko. And coming in handy for this episode as the primary source, I was thankful to have novelist, biographer, journalist, and translator Phyllis Birnbaum's 2015 book, Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, the story of Kawashima Yoshiko, the cross-dressing spy who commanded her own army. I'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes at the website. Kawashima Yoshiko, despite the Japanese-sounding name, was actually a direct descendant of the Manchu Aishinjuelo clan, who traced their ancestry directly back to the founder of the Qing dynasty. These Manchu Qing descendants who belonged to the Aishinjuelo family carried the most royal of royal blood amongst the Manchus. Everyone wanted to marry into their clan, I had to go all the way to Penang to track down Jeremiah Jenny on holiday with his family to confirm the Manchu pronunciation. Aishin Jioro. She was the 14th daughter, some say the 13th, of Prince Su, Su Qin Wang. This Prince Su, who was named Shanxi, 
had 38 kids with five women, 21 sons, 17 daughters. Our subject today was born May 24, 1907 in Beijing and was given the name Aixin Jueluo Xianyu and known early as Princess Xianyu. Her family was not just some ordinary family. Prince Su of the first rank was a title that was one of the dozen or so iron cap princely peerages during the Qing dynasty. Iron cap meant that the peerage was passed down to each generation without any downgrading or dilution in rights or prestige from generation to generation. Many peerages given out were diminished in each succeeding generation, but not the Prince Su title. Whoever the prevailing Prince Su was, in the royal scheme of things, it was not a backbencher at court. Shan Qi was the tenth heir to the Prince Su peerage. You know, like the Prince of Wales. Charles wasn't the first. That peerage went all the way back to 1301. The first Prince Su was Hauge, or Huge, son of Hong Taiji, the founder of the Qing dynasty and the eighth son of Nurhachi. Nurhachi was the founder and first Khan of the Manchu, later Jin dynasty that ran 1616 to 1636, a forerunner to the Qing as the Jurchens were to the Manchus. The Qing dynasty was established in April 1636. Hong Taiji was the first ruler and reigned until 1643. Xuanzhi became the next emperor and the first one to sit on the dragon throne in Beijing. And the Xuanzhi emperor, this first emperor to reign from Beijing, left behind some pretty halfway decent progeny. His son was the emperor Kangxi, his grandson was Yongzheng, and his great-grandson, the Qianlong emperor. <laughs> Not bad. So being the daughter of Prince Su meant she came from a lot of privilege. Except that four years after she was born, the Qing dynasty fell, and this 14th daughter of Prince Su, Princess Xianyu, as well as her 30-something brothers and sisters, had the rug pulled out from under them. Thankfully for the Qing royal family, the Empress Dowager Longyu, before she died in early 1913, was able to finagle a pretty good abdication agreement on behalf of the five-year-old emperor, Puyi. This included allowing the imperial family to keep their titles, possessions, as well as continued residence in the Forbidden City until... Feng Yuxiang kicked them out following the Beijing coup in October 1924. We looked at that at the uh, in that Warlord series. And on top of that, the royals were given an annual stipend of four million silver tails. The imperial mausoleums would be protected and looked after, and the new Republic of China government would pay for the Guangxu Emperor's funeral and the construction of his tomb. And Princess Xianyu's father, the current Prince Su, he was the head of the royalist faction, those who weren't so hot on the idea of a China Republic and who wanted to keep things the way they had been, going back to 221 BCE with the first Qin emperor. They liked the imperial form of government, and they admitted that the dynasty had fallen on hard times. But despite all that, they wanted to restore the Qing. And the elephant in the room, when you're talking about the Qing dynasty, was that all the emperors of this ruling dynasty in China from 1644 to 1911 were Manchus from the north and northeast of China. They had overthrown the Ming dynasty in 1644 and then went on to have a fantastic run, and now here they were, a shadow of their former greatness. 
depending upon the kindness of strangers. And this is where our story begins. Prince Su had a lot of financial resources, but he couldn't bankroll the whole Qing restoration movement on his own. He needed some help. And there just happened to be a lovely group of people just sitting there waiting to be asked. This was the Japanese Guangdong military. At the time of the fall of the Qing, Japan had already defeated China and Russia in two wars and were all over Shandong and Liaoning province, and elsewhere too. And to them, well, it wasn't such a stupid idea to lend a little clandestine support for the Manchu Restoration Movement. The Japanese had extremely ambitious plans for Manchuria, and, well, these Manchu ex-royals like Prince Su, his family, and all his other fellow conspirators in this Manchurian and Inner Mongolian independence movement, well, they could come in handy one day. If Japan was ever going to one day launch some puppet state up in Manchuria, they needed to start cultivating some puppets. There was also an independence movement for the Mongols fomenting that would ultimately lead to nothing. It's just worth noting that the Manchus and the Mongols sort of found themselves in the same boat and supported each other's causes in different ways. If you recall from that Warlord series, there was this attempted coup by Zhang Xun. Remember him? The pigtailed warlord? June to July 1917. He tried to restore the boy emperor Pu Yi onto the throne, and the whole thing just fizzled out almost as fast as it began. But one of the upshots was that the post-Yuan Shikai Republic of China government in Beijing started clamping down on all these high-profile former members of the Qing royal family. Prince Su, well, he wasn't in on Zhang Xun's Hail Mary to restore the emperor, but he had to take some heat, being a well-known supporter of Qing restoration and all. So Prince Su packed up his gigantic family, and he moved everyone to the Japanese-controlled city of Lushunko, today part of Dalian, Liaoning province. The whole... Prince Su family and their servants move into this new home. It was a far cry from their 200-room digs in Beijing, but it sufficed considering the circumstances. There in Lushunko, the children attended Japanese schools and got indoctrinated nice and early. Prince Su continued his secret plotting against the government to restore the Qing. While there, the Japanese never let Prince Su out of their sight, and it didn't take long for his home in Lushunko to become kind of a Manchu-Qing restoration clubhouse, so there were always people coming and going to confer with Prince Su. You know, if you peel this onion down all the way to the basal disc, the Japanese wanted to take over Manchuria and Mongolia. And one of the things they did was to manufacture this independence movement that created the illusion that these non-Han Chinese people of these lands deserve self-rule. The narrative that they created was that those lands were never part of China, and these Mongol and Manchu people had their own language, culture, sensibilities, everything. They had nothing to do with the Republic of China thing, and these guys should just go their way, and the Manchus and Mongols should go theirs. And the thinking was that, well, once all the propaganda and manipulation of the truth had the desired effect on the populace and independence was accomplished, well, these Mongol and Manchu leaders who they had supported in hard times would become their stooges, 
who served Japanese interests in the region. Control over these various royals and future stooges was done through a number of Japanese nationals who were embedded into their lives. And for such a key figure as Shanxi, this Prince Su, the person injected into their lives was Kawashima Naniwa. He was a very small-framed man for his age, five feet tall, maybe not even 100 pounds. I guess you could call him an ultra-nationalist. Naniwa came from a samurai background, very hot-headed. He was involved in a number of causes and was extremely outspoken about Russia as Japan's greatest threat. There was an old story about how in 1900, during the Boxer Rebellion, when German troops had come to burn down the Forbidden City with the Qing royal family inside, as the story goes, it had been Kawashima Naniwa who had negotiated with the foreign troops and convinced them to spare the Forbidden City, therefore saving the day. This is the legendary beginning of the Prince Su-Kawashima-Naniwa relationship. And through Prince Su, Naniwa had opened up this secret direct conduit between the Japanese and the Qing government. Naniwa himself had a love-hate relationship with China. He was born... The year Lincoln was shot, 1865. His first trip to China had been in 1886. Like a lot of people, me included, back in 1980, he loved everything he encountered on that first trip. But over time, the more he saw the decay of the imperial dynasty, the more he became disgusted with China. You could call him, I guess, one of these so-called Tariku Ronin. In Mandarin, that would be Talu Langren. These people sort of styled themselves as masterless samurai who wandered the land and lived as adventurers. Well, in the late 19th century and all throughout the early 20th century, a whole bunch of these guys came to Manchuria. They weren't all criminals and ne'er-do-wells, but a good number of them, like Kawashima Naniwa, had ties to all kinds of secret societies and conspirators who were surely up to no good in China. These Tariku Ronin, like Naniwa, were useful as spies, agitators, and occasional muscle. They bought into the whole ideology of Japanese-flavored Pan-Asianism and the later, greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere idea. Naniwa was one of Prince Su's main advisors and the prince's main conduit to the Japanese military leaders and officials. They were both quite important to each other, at least at this hour. And in 1915, Prince Su, who had children aplenty, selected his 14th daughter, Xian Yu, to be handed over to Kawashima Naniwa to be raised in Japan and immersed in Japanese ways. It had to be this way. Prince Su had got caught up in a failed Qing restoration bid that initially had the Japanese Guangdong Army's secret backing, but after a sudden... Reversal in policy, at that moment in time, the Japanese ended up not backing Prince Su's restoration bid. And since Kawashima Naniwa, as Prince Su's advisor, had his fingerprints all over this now embarrassing matter, well, this was the reason he was sent back to Japan. So handing over his 14th daughter, Princess Shenyu, to Naniwa to raise as his own was a way to keep that special connection between the two men, despite the distance. So she left China and first moved into Naniwa's stately home in Tokyo. 
nothing much about what went on in that home concerning this adolescent Manchu princess can be known for sure. Naniwa's wife, Fuku, was a terror to the young girl. Fuku suffered from mental illness and was said to be tortured by her husband's affairs, his secret life, and general negligence of her as a wife. Naniwa had arranged for a private tutor to raise Yoshiko, and this person became her mother figure. And around eight years of age, this former Princess Xianyu was formally adopted by Naniwa and was given the name Kawashima Yoshiko. In Mandarin, those kanji would be read Chuandao Fangzi. Kawashima Naniwa was, as I indicated, a very volatile character and had his fingers in a number of pies, one more outrageous than the next in many cases. And later on, due to his sudden reduced circumstances he found himself in in 1921, Naniwa had to leave the glittering city and move back to his family home in Matsumoto. Yoshiko was 14 then. Though she carried his surname and was known publicly as his adopted daughter, Naniwa had never formally registered her as his daughter, whether this was due to negligence or thoughts of needing Yoshiko to remain Manchu, just in case. He never registered her, which meant legally she was never a Japanese citizen. So she hid her teens, and that personality that would define her until her dying day began to burst forth. She was... One wild child, ready for anything, always liked to hang out with the boys and play their games. Whatever conventions existed for children of her age in 1920s Japan, eh, she blew them all up. Young girls talked one way and young boys another, but she spoke just like the boys. Kawashima Yoshiko, she was sort of a big sensation the second she arrived in Tokyo and got settled. All early accounts mention her beauty and striking appearance, and of course everyone knew she was a former Qing princess. Then in the early 1920s, when she moved to a rather bucolic place like Matsumoto, that today has around a quarter million inhabitants, a century ago was much smaller. And in a small town like that, Yoshiko stood out, and not in a subtle way either. One Matsumoto resident put it this way, quote, It was as if a lustrous crane had just alighted upon a rubbish heap, end quote. She rode to school on a horse to where today's Matsumoto Arigasaki High School is, wearing a complete riding outfit, tie, and everything. She was, to keep that crane metaphor going, a a crane among chickens. In a place like Matsumoto, appearance aside, she was in a class by herself with her rather idiosyncratic and sometimes wacky behavior and her headstrong ways and stubbornness and refusing to back down to authority. Plus, on top of that, hey, she was a princess. Well, in 1922, Kawashima Yoshiko's life took a tragic turn for the worse when her father, Prince Su, died in Lushwinko. And in the Manchu tradition for persons of this stature, Prince Su's widow, Yoshiko's mother, the Lady Zhang Jiaxi, killed herself. Upon hearing the news of the prince's death, Naniwa and Yoshiko took the first transport to China to Lushunko to attend the funeral. Not only was Prince Su a major political figure in the whole Qing restoration movement, 
Now, he was also its main financial backer, so with him gone, the royalists, who were still pining for a restoration of the Manchu Qing dynasty, that took a huge body blow. I'm not sure how, but Naniwa, by some arrangement, was given control over Prince Su's finances. The main source of income for the family was a public market where stalls were rented out to vendors. It was very big and provided a very stable and sizable income to Prince Su's family. Now, Naniwa controlled those purse strings. That's a whole other story. For a long time, he fought with Prince Su's family over control of the assets. After the funeral and the events that followed, Kawashima, Naniwa, and Yoshiko returned to Matsumoto. But now, coming up on her sweet 16, Yoshiko had become such a rebellious and disruptive student, the school refused to allow her back into the classrooms. She was expelled, and this pretty much ended her formal schooling. Also around this time, following Prince Su's passing, Yoshiko started to get these teenage delusions of grandeur that she might one day be the one who would pick up the torch and play a role in restoring the Manchus to the throne. You know, growing up in a household like she did, she was constantly exposed to this talk and saw the passion these men had for this cause, that it inspired her or influenced her thinking. It's only natural. Like a lot of zealots, Yoshiko was high on passion and enthusiasm for her cause, but not too up to speed on the political situation in China during the 1920s, the warlord era that we discussed last time. Very complicated times, and someone of Yoshiko's limited education and living in this dysfunctional bubble that she lived in hardly made her suitable to take a leadership role in this cause. So Yoshiko began to style herself as this young Manchu former royal out to restore her family's fortunes in Manchuria. And Naniwa was more than happy to stand behind the screen, egging Yoshiko on, encouraging her in this hopeless quest that he had a vested interest in. I won't dwell on the life with Kawashima Naniwa. He was a tyrant, she was a rebel, and feared him not. Eyewitness testimony indicates it wasn't a terribly healthy relationship for either of them, or anyone else caught up in the vortex. They both had some obvious personality traits that didn't mix too well. In her 16th or 17th year, this would be 1921-22, she made veiled remarks publicly that emitted a whole lot of smoke as far as her being a victim of sexual abuse by her adoptive father, Kawashima Naniwa. She never outright accused him of raping her, but everyone sort of knew who she was talking about. She indicated something had happened and that it was traumatic, sexual, and after it happened, she had, quote, ceased being a woman forever. And you could put this and every other story about Kawashima Yoshiko into the maybe happened, maybe not file. There's no proof to anything she says and from the moment she first became a figure of popular interest, she was always loose with the facts and not terribly truthful. And she loved to talk. And in the end, she talked herself to death. Whatever the case may be, Yoshiko's act of defiance was in reaction to a love affair she was having with someone who was described as the only true love she ever knew. Naniwa wasn't having any of it, and for a number of reasons that we'll never know for certain, 
he forced an end to the relationship, and in terminating this one true loving relationship, Yoshiko became profoundly traumatized. Then on November 27, 1925, she shocked the Japanese public by posing for a photo in the Asahi Shimbun, sporting a severe buzz cut and wearing a boy's uniform. And she said, playing loose and fast with the facts, was that on Double Ten Day in 1924 at 9.45 p.m., she had shorn off all her hair, taking one last final dramatic photograph in a kimono before crossing this bridge into a new phase of her life. She said that this act was her, quote, farewell to my life as a woman. The newspaper went with the headline, quote, Kawashima Yoshiko, beautiful black hair completely cut off because of unfounded rumors, makes decision to become a man, end quote. 1925 clickbait right there. That time, her brother was living with her at Naniwa's in Matsumoto, and she began to regularly borrow his clothing. And with her new look, that today in California, where I'm based, is quite normal, but 1925 Japan it was most provocative. And this act fanned the already hot flames of the public's interest in her life. In one of countless interviews she gave over her lifetime, in print and on the radio, she let it be known that Nothing but sadness had dogged her from the moment she was born. She had suffered one setback after another, and whatever anguish and misery or disappointment found her, it was always due to her being a woman. Therefore, she had decided to become a man. And that's what she did, to the best of her ability. Not just her dress and comportment, but in her speaking style as well. She was 18 years old, a gossip column legend in her own time, dressed and spoke like a man, and had that short haircut, that royal pedigree. <laughs> she was flamboyance overload. She went on to say, quote, I was born with what doctors call a tendency toward the third sex, and so I cannot pursue an ordinary woman's goals in life. People criticize me and say that I'm perverted, and maybe they're right. I just can't behave like an ordinary feminine woman, end quote. She further said in the days that followed, quote, Since I was young, I've been dying to do the things that boys do. My impossible dream is to work hard like a man for China, for Asia, and I want nothing more in this world than to throw my life into working for the nation, end quote. So when she cut her hair and declared this new life to the world, a new chapter began in Kawashima Yoshiko's life, and she made a very public and messy scene in her break with her adoptive father, Kawashima Naniwa. She went her own separate way and began to live her life independent of the control Naniwa had exercised over her since her childhood. And if there ever was a perfect spot to put the bookmark in, one of the many bookmarks Colleen over in the Dairy State has sent to me, thanks Colleen, this would be it. And then next time, we'll pick up with Kawashima Yoshiko, now in her 20s, with that very unconventional life up till now, always bucking authority and norms of society, now with nobody to tell her what to do and not to do anymore. <laughs> She's ready for anything. We'll look at all that next time in part two. Once again, I want to emphasize this is a whole sidebar to everything I discussed in the past 10 episodes in that Warlord series. When that article and photo ran in the Asahi Shimbun with Yoshiko sporting that new hairstyle, the anti-Feng Tian War had just broken out. Remember, Feng Yuxiang and his Guomingjun forces tried to put away Zhang Zuolin and Wu Peifu. 
and the old marshal prevailed. When Kawashima Yoshiko's vessel arrived in China, the warlords were still ruling all the Rus. So I'm telling you, you won't want to miss that one. Of course, all my Patreon supporters get to hear it a few days earlier than the usual Sunday release date. If you too have been wondering how you can support the CHP, now approaching its 10th year of existence in June 2020, you have two ways. Patreon.com slash China History Podcast. Get access to all kinds of bonus material and early access to stuff. Or if you just want to contribute, you know, like some panhandler you're trying to get rid of. There's always the official CHP PayPal Donation Center at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Enter any number you want. Hit enter. Done. Okay, that's it for now. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from sunny Los Angeles. You know what I'm hoping for. Please don't let me down. Come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.